Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and we are continuing the story of Exodus this morning. Before we do, I do just want to let you know, fully up front, I am being, or I am feeling like very, very worn down today. I don't know if I'm like about to get sick or if I have something that my body's fighting. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up. Um, first off, so that I get some pity, but se- <laughs> second reason is, um, hey, whatever does land today, whatever does come out of my sermon this morning, we know it's all God, right? Um, that it was not me, that even in my weakest state, God could use me, right? So um, th- thanks again for being here this morning. Uh, really excited to have you. Really excited to start October off well with you. Um, I do want to jump right in, though, because the 10 plagues are one of the most well-known events in biblical history. I think that's fair to say. And yet, I believe that the purpose in the ark, the, the 10 plagues' purpose in the arc of redemptive history is often neglected or misunderstood. I think we know that the plagues were sort of used to liberate God's people from slavery, right? But I don't know if we ever consider, like, why, why the plagues? Why the particular plagues uh, that, that were being used? Did God just sort of, like, roll a plague dice and then pick whichever one showed up? And what does this tell us about God, right? This morning, we're going to explore only a piece of the complexity that is the plagues. It is such a complex passage. It is arranged in such an intentional way, and it's really, really awesome, but I don't have all day. So we're just going to explore a piece of that, right? But in exploring what we do explore, my prayer has been that we understand God more rightly this morning. So as we jump in, let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you uh, once again that we get together as a church and get to just think about you, talk about you, Um, consider who you are and the ways in which you have shown that uh, to us. I just pray this morning that whatever comes from me is forgotten, but whatever is of you is remembered, Lord. Uh, Let me be about your glory, not mine. Let me be about your name, not mine. Help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, like I said, if you have not been with us or if you can't remember, we are in a series tracking Moses' encounters with God in the book of Exodus. So far, what have we seen? We've seen Moses kill uh, an Egyptian that was treating an Israelite slave poorly. We then see Moses run to the wilderness to avoid those con- the consequences of that. God meets Moses in a burning bush to call uh, Moses to liberate God's people from slavery. Moses says no. Moses says yes, and Moses fails at his first attempt at liberation, and that's what we talked about last week. In this time, God has revealed that his name is Yahweh, which means I am who I am, and God has revealed that he hears the cries of his people and sees their pain and that he is going to liberate them. And Moses, despite his reluctance, has stepped out in faith to trust that Yahweh will use him to liberate the Israelites right? Now, up until this point, we sort of tracked one main theme, and I want to sort of re-show you what that theme is. The rest, because that theme, um, it comes to a bit of a culmination today in our passage. 
So I want to show you, like I said, we're, we're jumping right in. we got a lot to talk about, so stick with me. Uh, we're going to move a little bit quickly, uh, but hopefully everything will make sense at the end. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump back to when Moses encounters God in the burning bush. Uh, let's go to chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, Yahweh, I am who I am. This is what you are say, to say to the Israelites. I am, Yahweh, has sent me to you. Now we've already talked about the significance of I am who I am, right? But what I didn't highlight here is that God tells Moses to use this name when they ask who has sent him. In other words, I am has sent me to you, meaning that Moses, who Moses was sent by and whose name he comes in is of incredible importance, right? Coming in the name of Yahweh is to bring a particular power and authority to Moses' actions, right? Let's look at how that name is received, though, when Moses does come in the name of Yahweh. So chapter 5, this is part of the passage we preached last week. Uh, verse 1, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. So this is the first time they're meeting Pharaoh. And they said this, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. What's Pharaoh's response? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know that name. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So, coming in the name of Yahweh does not immediately hold power or respect for Pharaoh, right? And so, as a result, Pharaoh denies the request. You know, he's like, who's that? Why should I care, right? And this shouldn't be surprising to us. First off, Moses had to ask God's name, right? So, if Moses didn't know God's name, guess who probably also didn't know God's name? Pharaoh, right? And so when Moses is using this name for the first time to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's going to be like, who is that, right? Like, why should I care? The second reason this isn't surprising is God tells us, God tells Moses that Pharaoh's going to reject him, right? In his omniscience, God says, like, he's going to reject me. And don't worry, I'm going to do mighty acts in order to show him that I am God, but he is going to reject you, right? So the question becomes now what, right? Moses has come in the name of Yahweh, and that, that coming in the name of Yahweh carries no authority, no recognition with Pharaoh. So where does Moses go from here? And this is the passage that leads us straight into the plagues. And I want to show you from the get-go sort of like why I think God behaves the way he does, right? Or does the things he does through the plagues, because I want you to be with me as we piece together sort of like what, what these plagues mean and what they say about God, right? Uh, but before I do, one quick note on the plagues. So the word that we have historically translated plague is the Hebrew word nagah, or nagath is, the same, is another sort of version of that word. Now, nagah does, not, does often get translated as some sort of skin disease, but it's also a word for a strike, uh, sort of like a strike with your hand, like a blow, so you sort, you know, like this sort of strike, uh, maybe even like a punch. And I'm going to be honest with you, I think that that makes a whole of a lot more sense to think about the 10 plagues as 10 strikes. Like, there's only one, we're going to see this, but there's only one of the plagues that is actually a disease. And the word plague that we use only ever really means like some sort of disease, right? And so this morning, I'm going to use the word strike 
because I just think it's just a little bit more pointed. It's a little bit more uh, symbolic and brings a little bit more imagery to the sort of showdown that we have between God and Moses, or God and uh, Pharaoh. Uh, now, we're not going to read the entirety of the strikes because they are chapters 7 through 10. So it's four whole chapters of Exodus. So, like I said, I want to show you from the get-go the purpose for the, God's purpose for the strikes that he states seven times in these four chapters. It's a purpose statement that is in direct response to the flippant, arrogant dismissal of the Pharaoh that we saw here in chapter 5, right? And after we look briefly at this purpose statement, uh, we're going to do a slightly deeper dive into the ten, or sorry, nine of the ten strikes, and why they're the strikes that God uses. So let's first, though, look at the purpose statement. Let's start in chapter 7. After God has explained to Moses and Aaron that he is sending them back again to plead with Pharaoh to release the Israelites, so this was right after um, he had denied the request, this is what he says in chapter 7. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people of, Is of the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So what is God's stated purpose for the mighty acts of judgment, a.k.a. the strikes? Verse 5, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand right? I am the Lord. Let's keep going. Let's jump to the first strike. Then say to him, this is uh, verse 16 of the same chapter, the Lord, the God of Hebrews has sent me to you to say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is God speaking to, Mo, uh, to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike down the water of the Nile and it will be changed to blood, so on and so forth, what Chris read, right? Again, or what Chris read. Jeez, my words are not coming to me. I think my brain is just working slowly. Thank you for your patience. Again, by this you will know that I am the Lord, right? Not Pharaoh, not the Nile. Yahweh is the Lord. And then we see the second strike. The second strike, again, we're going to go back through these strikes, so bear with me. But the second strike is the frogs that will swarm the land and be everywhere. And, and when this happens, Pharaoh begs for Moses to take them away. And Moses says, sure, name a time. Pharaoh names a time, and then Moses says this to Pharaoh. It will be as you say, so that you may know there was no one like Lord our God. Right? That there was no one like Lord our God. You get the point. Seven times, so this was just three of them, seven times throughout the ten strikes, God says, I am doing this so that you will know that I am Lord. Right? Why seven times? Well, the number seven in Hebrew represents wholeness or completion. Things were often repeated or done seven times in order to show their importance. And so the author is doing this intentionally. God, it doesn't almost matter whether or not God said it seven times. Just the fact that they have recorded it seven times is to show this is the main point of our passage, right? The, the main point is to show the Egyptians, to th show the Israelites, to show us readers that there is no one like our God, right? You will know that, that Pharaoh is not a God. He thinks he's in control, but he's not, right? We will know that God is in control, that he is the Lord. 
So the question in response to God's responses then becomes this. Why does God protect his name? Why does God seem to want everyone to recognize his name so badly? Can you conclude, based on response, that God is just a vain being who needs to be recognized? Or is there goodness for us in knowing the name of God? You probably know which one I lean toward, but we're going to go ahead and look at it anyways, right? So with the rest of my time here, I want to explore the strikes, the plagues, and their intentionality in order to answer the question of why. Why does God desire his name to be known, and why does he do it through the plagues, through the strikes, right? Now, in order to do that, though, we're going to utilize a strategy that I talked about a few Sundays ago. That's called the hyperlink strategy. I don't know if you guys remember this. But if you weren't here when I talked about it, the whole Bible, but particularly the Torah, uses tons of echoes and hyperlinks to other passages throughout God's redemptive story to highlight different things about what's important in the text. That was kind of a confusing way I put it. You guys know in articles, I know you all, some of you were here a couple weeks ago, but I'm still going to explain it. In articles, there will be a word that's blue. You click on that word, it takes you to a different article or to a different page, right? You're on Wikipedia, and you can click on a name, it'll take you to another Wikipedia page, right? That's a hyperlink. And the Bible uses tons of hyperlinks in order to layer on meaning to different stories, right? Like, if I'm telling a story, but I also hyperlink to a different story, that means that I can draw some of the same conclusions from the two different stories. Are you guys with me? And so we're going to consider this. We're going to consider the ways in which the, the plagues actually hyperlink to the creation story. And, and uh, the, the particular question that we want to ask is, like, why the creation story? Well, think about what we learn about God in the creation story. Why does God create? It is an overflow of his relational wholeness that is found in the Trinity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's why he creates. It's, a, it's an overflow of his character, right, of his love. And so what flows from that relational wholeness is life abundance. So the metaphors of life and death are used a ton in Scripture in order to convey whether something is from God or not. What flows from God is life. What is around God in his presence is life. And so as a result, what is not in his presence, what does not flow from God, is death. So any hyperlinks to Genesis that point to something as being similar to creation would be used to show that life abundance is sprouting out of that event or of, the, of that place. Let me give you an example. There's tons of times where Abraham is sort of in a place and they make hyperlinks to the Garden of Eden, right? They sort of make it related to the Garden, wherever he is. He's not in the Garden of Eden. They make it related. It's, it's to highlight that God's abundance present, abundant presence is in that particular place when they hyperlink to that, right? And so it's supposed to hyperlink to life or to liveliness, right? But the opposite is also true. If a place is intentionally hyperlinked to the creation story in a way that highlights its oppositeness of creation, it is done show to show God's absence from something and to show that death is now what is abundant, right? So there's two ways you can hyperlink to the creation story, in a positive way and a negative way. If it's done in a positive way, it's like, hey, this is what life abundance looks like, right? But if it's done in a negative way, it's saying this is what the lack of life looks like. This is what death and decay look like, right? Um, the Bible Project podcast, which I highly recommend, they did a series on Exodus, I think in the beginning of 2022. 
Um, they call these, these events decreation events, right? So the opposite of creation, decreation events. Decreation events are when something from the creation story is reversed. So you can think of like Noah's Ark is a decreation event, right? There's some imagery that's similar to the creation, but it's sort of the opposite of what is happening. Decreation events, this is really important. Decreation events often happen when the arrogance of humanity has gotten to a point that God allows for temporary chaos to reign, okay? Decreation events often happen when the arrogance of humanity has gotten to a point that God allows for temporary chaos to reign. And he does this in order to bring people back to a place of understanding their, understanding their need for him, right? Now, I want to highlight something in saying this. These are not typical ways God responds to individual sin, right? Like, I think sometimes we can project on ourselves, like, my life is going poorly because I'm not living super poorly, and there are, or because I am living poorly, and there are natural consequences to our sins, right? Like, if we treat people poorly, you're not going to have a whole lot of relationships, right? Like, that is a natural consequence. But just because you, like, something goes poorly in your life does not mean that you have been living poorly, right? Like, that can, that's actually a little bit abusive toward yourself, um, using sp- some spiritual abuse toward yourself. And so I want to say that up front, that, like, this is not the typical way God responds to individual sin, right? And so as we read these, I don't want us to get the wrong picture of God here, that he is punitive and that we should be afraid of him when we sin, right? In fact, I think we should do the opposite. I think we should run to him. So these events are very rare. Just consider the amount of evil that Pharaoh and Egypt have allowed to happen against the Israelites, right? It's slavery. They're slavery, right? They're enslaved. And genocide, right? You guys remember when he was throwing the babies in the Nile, in the water, right? Slavery and genocide. That is very evil, right? The depths of of Pharaoh's sin are very, very deep. And yet, even in our story, God is patient and gives opportunities for repentance to Pharaoh and to Egypt. So these decreation events occur when it's gotten bad, bad, right? When he, he's like, okay, we need a little bit more of a wake-up call than just calling to repentance. So with that, that was a lot of words to say, we're going to look quickly at the nine first strikes, the nine first plagues, hi- and highlight the ways in, the, in which they are intentionally hyperlinked to creation. You guys with me? Okay. First one is blood. The first strike is blood. So this is the one that Chris read. I decided they're pretty repetitive, um, so we didn't need to read every single one. I am going to throw the verses for each one as we go. I'm not going to read them. You can write down the verses if you want to. Um, but we're just really going to talk about them from a little bit of an overarching um, sort of view. So the first one is blood. The Nile River becoming blood. This is probably our most pointed symbolic act of all of the strikes. And it has quite a few functional meanings. The first point that I want to highlight now, but I don't want to spend too much time on the rest of the strikes, is that in these God is also directly attacking the, what the Egyptians would have considered their gods or from their gods, right? The Nile, what does it represent? It was sort of like where life came from. Egypt was a nation that was doing so well because they had access to water, right? And at that time, water equals money. And so what the Nile then becomes is the Nile actually was viewed by the Egyptians as a god itself. Like it is a god because it provides sort of like the flourishing of life um, for the Egyptians. And so there are ways through all of these where when God comes in, right, when the unchangeable I am comes in and immediately changes the Nile, 
it points to Yahweh's power over any other gods, right? And this actually is true of all of the strikes. We're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus on the hyperlinks. But this is true of every single one of the plagues. That God is actually intentionally attacking the Egyptian gods in order to show them that, again, he is in charge, right? He is the Lord. The fact that he turned the Nile into blood also is intentional in that it draws Pharaoh's attention to his own sin, that he casts the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile to die, right? And so it's a symbolic picture of like, this is what you have done, Pharaoh. This is a result of your sin, of the, um, the killing of the baby boys, right? God immediately lets Pharaoh know why these events are about to happen. And again, with each strike, Pharaoh's given a chance to repent and let the people out of slavery, and yet he still does not. But what is the hyperlink uh, here to our first strike? Randomly, at the end of our first plague, it is mentioned that the Nile is blood for seven days, which is a reference to the seven days of creation and rest at the beginning of time. Now, I'll be honest, if this was our only sort of hyperlink to creation, I don't think it would be one. It's like sort of just a small detail, right? But in relation to the rest of the hyperlinks that we're about to look at, I do think it's an intentional thing. Um, we, we also should know there's this sort of like ancient writing pattern where instead of providing details for every single thing in stories that reoccur, um, what they do is they'll provide some of the details at the beginning and then with every reoccurring event, it's just sort of assumed that that's true as well. And so what we have is we have reoccurring events, right? We have nine strikes that are very, very similar. Uh, and in the very first one, they provide that this one lasts for seven days. And so a lot of people sort of assume that each of these plagues lasts for seven days. So again, it's just a highlight of like creation was seven days, therefore decreation is also seven days, right? But in reality, the first strike is really just to highlight that evil is being turned back in on itself within Egypt for the rest of our story, right? Okay, so that's our first strike. The, the rest of them are a little bit more uh, pointed. Then the second strike is that, we, that we've already mentioned is the frogs. So the frogs come out of the water and they cover every single square inch of everything in Egypt. Yeah, it's disgusting. Why frogs? You see, the boundary between land and water in Genesis and in ancient narratives in general is really, really important. See, water represented sort of like the unknown, right? We can't see the bottom of the ocean, but uh, so it represents the unknown. But it all, also, as a result of that, it sort of represents like disorder and chaos, right? The unknown, like I said. Whereas then land represents, it's a little bit easier to sort of like parse into boundaries and things like that. And so it represents order and sort of the law of the way things should work. And so when we get... Uh, like frogs coming up into the land, what is true of frogs? They're amphibious, right? And so they exist both in the land and the water, right? So frogs are a symbol of chaos being spread through the land. How better to describe decreation than the opposite of ordering things, right? Chaos. Just as frogs blur the boundaries between land and water, so too are they blurring the boundaries between chaos and order, right? Uh, our third strike then is gnats. What is important about the gnats? You guys know what gnats are? They're like the little flying bugs? I think a lot of people in Chicago or like the Midwest know what they are, but I was listening to this podcast and they're like, what are gnats? 
I was like, what do you mean, what are gnats? Like, I, I used to play, um, what are they called, intramural sports at Northwestern, and we used to play on this field, and there would literally just be like hordes of them. I would like get my protein intake from these gnats like during our games, because I would just be running, and it's literally hundreds you would inhale. Oh, it was terrible, yeah. So, yeah, you're, you're welcome that you get a picture now of what this is like for them, right? What is, what is important about the gnats? I want you to look at chapter 8, verse 16 with me. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. So where do our gnats come from? The dust of the ground, right? This is, of course, the same phrase that Genesis, is, Genesis uses to talk about the creation of man, right? And when this is referred to in Scripture, what does dust like usually represent? It usually represents the mortality of man, right? From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. So the gnats are a decreation event in that they represent mortality and death surrounding the people and covering them up, right? Okay, our fourth strike is flies. They, like the gnats, fill the land. The, the language used to talk about how the flies fill the land is the same language used when God commands Adam and Eve in the blessing commandment in Genesis 1.28. So it's be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's the same language that's used as the flies. So in, instead of the blessing command of filling the earth with um, like fruitfulness and multiplication, we're, be, we're filling the land with flies, right? Next one. We actually have a plague in the next one. It's our fifth strike. It's an actual plague. The Egyptian livestock get a plague. Now, in explaining this plague, God talks about making a distinction between the Egyptian and Israelite livestock and that he will do this. He will give them the plague at an appointed time. And this is actually the exact same phrasing that God uses in Genesis 1 to talk about the day and the night. He says he will make a distinction between the day and the night and that they will be uh, marked by appointed times. And so it's sort of like he makes a distinction between the livestock and he's going to appoint when they're going to do it in the same way he was making a distinction between day and night and he was going to appoint when they were going to do it. But again, instead of talking about the ordering of life on sort of a circadian rhythm, right, we're now talking about the flourishing of death. Our sixth strike is boils. This is probably my most, the most fun, like hyperlink. Yeah, boils are terrible. That's not fun. But um, So what happens with the boils is Moses and Aaron take soot dust from the ground, so sort of like campfire dust, right? They blow it, and wherever it lands on humans or on animals, festering boils break out. Yeah, it's terrible. Now this, like I said, this hyperlink is kind of wild. Um, so I don't know if you remember this, but hyperlinks can also be similar words. And so what happens is, so the word seven, for example, in Hebrew, it represents completion wholeness because it has the same exact letters as the word for to be complete, right? So they spell the words with the same letters. Obviously, that is like not a framework we have in our Western context of language. It's not like like uh, dog and God are related because they have this. I came up with that off the top of my head. That's pretty impressive. Uh, th thank you, Jason. Um, you know, God and dog are not related because they are spelled from the same letters. That's just sort of a happenstance, right? But the Hebrew language is super intentional 
in that when words are spelled with the exact same letters, they have some sort of relation, right? So that is true of the word for boils. The word for boils is the word for snake in Hebrew, but backwards. And so the writer is showing us that the snake, the great deceiver, is hyperlinked in order to again highlight the death that is pervasive in our story, right? All right, seventh out of nine. The seventh strike is hailstones. The, the rest of these are all a little bit more, um, a little bit more obvious. Now, the hailstones do start this pattern of the last three strikes. Um, in this, God says, I will bring a hailstorm that is the worst storm that Egypt has ever seen. Our next two, which we'll get to, locust and darkness, have similar phrases. The, word, the worst locust infestation that they've ever seen, right? And then the darkness is so dark that the Egyptians cannot see. It highlights that the intensity is being turned up, right? Each time Pharaoh is given opportunity to release the Israelites, and each time he does not. So God turns up the intensity on the decreation events. Now, the hyperlink for hailstones is what Exodus 9 describes them as destroying. So the hailstones in the story, they, um, where am I? They destroy the humans, the beasts, and the vegetation. Now, humans, beasts, vegetation are highlighted as God bringing forth life in Genesis. And so those are sort of the three things that he creates, right? Humanity, beasts, and vegetation. That's what sprouts from the life. And so if the hailstones are destroying them, again, it's a decreation event, right? Ninth strike, the aforementioned locusts. There are two main hyperlinks for the locusts. Uh, so they eat and destroy everything that uh, day three, what, or that, were, that were created on day three of the Genesis story. So God creates sort of the trees and the leaves and all these things. And that's exactly what's named as what the locusts destroy, right? But the other, wor- the other um, hyperlink is that a great wind brings them in. And the word here for wind is the ruah of God. Now, if, I don't know if you know this, but that is the same word for the spirit. Uh, the spirit that hovers over the water in Genesis and the same spirit that gives life to Adam and Eve, right? So the ruah, God's breath, brought in life through the nostrils of man, and now it blows in death. Again, a pointed decreation event, right? And then our ninth and final strike that we'll explore today is the darkness. This one's super easy. Darkness falls over only where the Egyptians are. And do you know what God says to bring in the darkness? Let there be darkness. I mean, you can't, yeah, that one's a little bit easy. You can't get it more intentional than that, right? You see, at each point in the story, God is reminding us through the language that he is the author of life, but that he can allow death to enter the story, right? You see, I believe what God is showing to Pharaoh and subsequently us is this. Pharaoh asks the question in the beginning of the interactions between Moses and him. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. See, in saying this, Pharaoh is showing his ignorance about who is holding everything together and about who all good things come from. See, Pharaoh had come to believe that he was God. The Egyptian power structure led him to believe that he had control over the Nile, over the frogs and animals, over all things. And yet, what Pharaoh failed to realize that he was that he was relying his entire tenure as Pharaoh 
on Yahweh's power, right? On Yahweh's power that allowed the Nile to flow. On Yahweh's power that appointed times and places for particular animals and insects. On Yahweh's power to light the dang sky, right? And we can know this. When you take the power of Yahweh away, away from those things, it's not going to be better for Pharaoh, and it's not better for us. Pharaoh was just a man. He was born, and he died, and he had no power over these things. He just had a perception of power, right? It was not better for Pharaoh because God's control and God's power do not lead to death like it did for Pharaoh, right? What happened when Pharaoh was in control? He killed the baby boys. What happens when God is in control is that life flows. And so when God lets go of that control, death begins to re-enter the story, right? See, I believe that God wants everyone to know his name, Pharaoh included, because to know God's name is to know life abundance. It is to know the goodness that comes from God. He is the source of life, the streams of living water, the author of salvation, the beginning and the end. He is goodness, period. And to know his name is to know all these things and to experience all these things. I'd like to end my time this morning with a bit of a reminder. You see, the showdown between Yahweh and Pharaoh, it only lasts a couple of chapters in Exodus, right? We learn pretty quickly that that God is more powerful than one man, right? But what does it echo? It echoes the ultimate showdown between God and evil, between God and death. See, much like Pharaoh, there's a day where death thought that he landed the final strike on Yahweh. You see, death knew that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Death knew that, right? He knew Jesus was the word made flesh, Yahweh in a body, the great I am. He knew that, but what he didn't know, that what he thought was the final, final blow to Jesus, his death on a cross, was really the final, de- the final strike on himself, right? See, just like our Exodus story ends with Pharaoh seeing the full power of God on display and being humbled, so too does the story of us end with God's full display of power on the cross. We can trust that because Christ paid the price we deserved, we can come to God, know that he is Lord, and experience the life abundance that flows from him. The Egyptian king had no shot against our God, right? Pharaoh had no shot against our God, and death does not either. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Missio Dei Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.